Hey guys, and welcome back to a shit show of an episode. That is the best intro <laughs> we've had yet. Um, basically, we have spent the last hour running around like a chicken with its head cut off because <sighs> the library that we check our stuff out from gave us the wrong equipment. Again. Again. Week in, a row, week in a row. And when I checked to make sure we had the stuff fixed from last week so that didn't happen again, they messed up the other mic setup. The other mic. So, so now we're using one mic uh, back, like, back like we did in the olden and, days, and we're recording... Literally on my phone. Yeah. Um, it can't be worse than the Donner Party episode, but I should note that we can't literally <laughs> upload from my apartment because I have not had Wi-Fi for five days in my shitty apartment <laughs> complex that y'all have heard me complain about so many times. Literally is not fixing it. Um, so no washers, dryers, no Wi-Fi. I should just move out of here. Yeah. Like, I should tell them that they've broken the contract. Honestly, they have. They, like... Several times. Yeah. Like, several times over. They have not upheld their tri- their side of the agreement. Yeah. So, this is... <sighs> if it's a little chaotic... Sorry. You know what? You know what? <laughs> it is what it is. <laughs> yeah. So, we're sharing one mic. So, if we're, like, one of us phase out into the distance, it's just because we faced the mic towards the person who was doing the primary speaking at the time. Yeah. Um, so, hopefully, you know... It's a good enough episode. Yeah. Um, who knows? <laughs> who knows? Uh, Content-wise, I feel like my notes are in a pretty good place. Um, good. Yeah. Mine are chaotic. But, like, this whole mine event were is super, chaotic. Mine were super chaotic last week. And I realize now why they were chaotic last week is because every article about this guy is chaotic. Because I think he was just, like, literally... Well, he was literally well, insane. My guy this week is super chaotic. Yeah. 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 So it's just gonna be... We're just... It's one of those days. Yeah. You know? It is one of those days. And we're getting through it because we're recording this episode. Yeah, um, It's just you and me against the world. What was that song from like the 90s that we grew up with? I can't. That one? Maybe. That might be it. I Love can't see but you. No, it's the one that's like me and you and you and me. No, there's another one. It's like in Sky High or something. I don't know. I'll, it I'll probably is. <laughs> it probably is in Sky High. It's just you and me against the world. No, I don't know. I can't. Sing. I think I, I think I might. Know. You can like I can like kind of hear the rhythm, but I don't think the words are exactly right. You anyway. know what? We'll get to that later. Yeah. That's in- um. You know what? Okay. First of all, we have to do our um. Welcome back to this is not. A history. Lecture. Sorry. Okay, let's yeah. get that taken care of. That's okay. our podcast, Check. actually. Uh, real quick, how was your week? Really good. Like, That's it, good. the rest of the week was fine. Today yeah. has just been mass chaos. Um, yeah, you and our friend Emma hung out yesterday. Yeah, um, I finally got some I just looked at her picture, and it's super cute. It's, isn't it? I know. Yeah. It's going to be a beautiful photo shoot. Yeah, oh my god. They, she's doing a, a Dia de los Muertos, like, Day of the Dead themed photo. Like, she's doing the whole dress, and we have worked out, we have worked out the rest of it. I'm making this lace black collar for her. Oh, that's so, so cool. Yeah. yeah. Um, and you finished your dress. I did. Oh my God. Yeah. I finished yeah. the big green dress, the interchangeable one with all the different pieces. So it now, looks so amazing. I'm literally going to have to like throw a ball. No, no, just no. So I the can thing is that. one of our friends wants to have a Shrek theme party. And I was like, cat, you have yeah. to, you have to go with Fiona <laughs> and wear your green dress. <laughs> the best, per, the best use for it so far. Absolutely. <laughs> but yeah, no, I'm very excited to have an event someday, maybe, to wear that dress, too. But hey, now I'm like, you well, keep working at historic homes. You never know. Oh, I know. I'm, I'll be wearing it to our big Christmas event. Oh, There's nice. A big Christmas dinner That's a good Christmas be, dress. Yeah. yeah. So I have to play flute at it. So, like, oh. I have to um, lace that corset not so tight. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for 
basically, yeah. That's going to be a live reenactment of what is going to happen at that event. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, yeah, I'm excited about that. And now all I have to do is decide what project I'm working on for my TikTok followers next. <laughs> That's exciting. Yeah. If you would like an opinion on that, hop on over to Kat's TikTok <laughs> at the Low Key Catastrophe, and you will get not only to see the dress in all of its completed glory, <laughs> but to vote on what's happening next. Yeah. So, I say go do that. Yeah. Um, as her cross-promotional right as there. her in real life friend i will offer you opinion in real life and okay. not on tiktok yeah but is... i don't we can discuss that yeah, later we'll discuss. <laughs> i'm supposed to have fabric arriving soon Ooh. but the front office here who knows they might never let me know that my package has arrived because that's very fitting <laughs> they didn't tell me that my all my textbooks had gotten here for a week and they're supposed my to call God. and email and i was like this oh, is a... none of my stuff got delivered and i don't have my textbooks and then finally i walked in and i was like hey and they're like oh it's probably over there, and it's just a table, a dining room table. Oh, my God. Piled, like, so high with packages, and I was like, I'm going to scream. That's so stressful. The funny thing is, is, like, when I lived at my old apartment where we did have to go through the office to, like, mm-hmm. get mail, I would always look at, like, the people sorting mail and be like, I want to do that job. Well, and like- I think it's a holdover from the Grinch. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> Probably. It's just weird knowing that they were letting people go through so people could have taken any yeah, of those packages. Ridiculous. Like, that's not Yeah, that's not safe or <sighs> what you do. But um, yeah, how was yeah. your week? My week was a week. It was pretty average. Um, you know. Did some school, did some work, hung nice. out with some people. Nice. Including you. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> I did see you. Yeah. You did. I, I did. saw you a lot. Yeah. Uh, just like every other week. Yeah. <laughs> and right now. Um, but yeah, nothing, nothing major to report other than like the state where we currently are and it's legislation. The place where I unfortunately currently am. Which is Texas. <laughs> which is sucking ass Which right I'm sure if you're listening to us, you know what's happening in Texas. Yeah. So we don't need to rehash that. Just know that we are. This would have been a good week for talking about like. Well, who the hell knew to... we were gonna. Oh, I should have talked about. I'll talk about it in the next few weeks. I'll talk about Henrietta Lacks soon. Yeah, like after we watch the movie. Oh, I've read the book too. Yeah, so like it'll be a nice refresher. Yeah, I'll be able to go back on that. But yeah, if you think women's rights took a hit, women of color have Mm -hmm. consistently had their bodies violated in terrible ways. So Mm -hmm. we'll 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 talk about that. That's a good episode. I'll throw that in there soon. Yeah, absolutely. But like I said, no need to rehash everything that's happened because I'm sure if you're listening to us with our tone of podcast, you know what's happening in Texas. Mm -hmm. Um, Just know that we are. Just as upset as anyone else. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, should we go ahead and get into it, Kat? Let's do it. Let's do it. Yeah. Well, so I have forgotten who you have. I am talking today about John Brown and Harper's Ferry. You are chalking. Chalking about. <laughs> I sound like Jar Jar Binks. Ugh. He's the worst. He's literally the worst character in the entire Star Wars franchise. You know, I'll take your word for it because I've never seen Star Wars. I know. Yeah. Yeah, I know that you I'm know. I'm working on it. Um, so many of my friends. Okay, so if you hear rustling, I'm moving the mic to face Kat. Oh, yes. And she's going to regale us about um, the person whose name you just said. Yeah, John I Brown. I focus on because you said chalking. I am chalking, all right? <laughs> That really does sound like Jar Jar Binks. Okay. Um, I'm talking about John Brown. Do you know, have you heard anything about John Brown? Um, the name sounds familiar, but it, I know there's like a John Brown University, right? Is that? I don't actually know if that's the same person. I don't know. Um, Th- that's a very, um. It could be. John Brown is a very nondescript name. <laughs> yeah. Well, I asked Emma yesterday and she had never heard of John Brown. And I realized John Brown was a very pivotal person in my understanding of history. 
And then I realized, I think it's just the way I idolized him in my head, because I don't think that a lot of schools talk about him, because he's a very controversial person. He shouldn't be controversial, but he is. Interesting. Um, so, for those of you who don't know about John Brown or Harper's Ferry, the- I definitely have heard of Harper's Ferry. Yeah. But... Well, Harper's Ferry is a town. Uh-huh. The event itself was because there was an armory there, and John Brown, who is a staunch- abolitionist and mm-hmm. like was willing to physically attack and get aggressive. Is this the slave? He tried to lead a slave rebellion. Lead okay, a slave okay, rebellion. Okay, okay, yeah. Okay. Yes. Through have, Harper's Ferry. Yes. I've probably heard of that Harper's Ferry and the slave rebellion, but I'm bad with like names. <laughs> yeah. Well, and it's not talked about as often as it should be. And I think it's very pivotal because, um, because it's arguably the powder keg for the civil war. Yes. Like the way we talk about yeah. like mm-hmm. shot her around the world and the Revolutionary War and stuff, we this is a huge catalyst moment for America when yeah. it comes to. I'm glad you're doing war. this. this yeah, it's very American history. I need to f- refocus on some of that. Well, we have some coming. I say if you soon. keep doing not American histories, it's okay because I I can do more of those. That's I, true. Well, I, by American history, I mean like Eurocentric. Textbook? Yeah, oh, textbook textbook stuff, not yeah, like, like weird stories. From yeah, the yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. Well. Um, I also want to make known before I start into this, John Brown is a white man who tried to leave a slave rebellion to free all the slaves and basically collapse the Southern economy, which would inevitably lead to violence. And I don't want to perpetuate the white savior complex. John Brown is not like the white savior of, you know, what could have been the white savior of the South and slavery. Um, he's just a very important figure. Cause like I said, he starts off a lot of the like violence around the civil war and it also created a huge martyrdom it created a huge like actually the battle hymn of him of the republic is like related to john mm-hmm. it's it's like it's very interesting he was he knew harriet tubman frederick douglas like he was a fascinating person so he's definitely like a figure yes yeah he's arguably the most staunch white abolitionist that's what it sound like it's yeah probably, he was the white guy there yeah, yeah. and like Again, not the white savior complex. It's just a very important story to talk about. Yeah, for sure. Um, and I think it's interesting, the what-ifs in history, because what if it had worked and he had managed to... Yeah. And what mm-hmm. got me wanting to do this was actually there's a TV show called The Good Lord Bird huh. that some of the, one of the actors <laughs> from Hamilton was ta- like in it. And so I was like, I mean, I love Hamilton. Yeah. I'll go watch this. And I was going mm-hmm. to binge it this week, and then my Wi-Fi went out for the past few days, so I have not been able to watch it. But... I did the research on it anyway, and so now that I know the story, I can go back and watch the TV show educated. Um, Nice. And you can be like, "Mm, that's not accurate. That's not accurate. (laughs) I've heard it's very loosely based, which I almost kind of like more, so it's good that I know the background now. If it's loosely based, you're easier, you can forgive easier. Yeah. In my experience, you're like, okay, that's not right, but they weren't striving for accuracy. Yeah. Well, it's like the great... I adored that. The costuming, incredible. Oh, yeah. Not historically accurate. Uh-huh. And it says literally on all the commercials, like, loosely based. And I was like, yeah. still a phenomenal show. Still loved mm-hmm. fanning. Like, mm-hmm. I like all of it. But yeah. no, I also, absolutely. you watched it knowing this is not correct. Yeah. Um, and for it's, s- like, it's like book adaptations. Yeah. Where they're like, kind We're not going to try. It's like the limiting, or the series of unfortunate events movie. Yeah. How, like, they knew they weren't going to do all 13 books. So they did what they could. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um... So yeah, knowing that you don't know much about this is interesting because it was big to me, maybe because in my brain, this was such an important person to be a white abolitionist that stepped Mm -hmm. forward and I was like interested in that. But 
when Emma said she'd never heard about it, I wondered if it's just something maybe in Texas or other southern schools they don't teach it as much. Maybe as we get into it, because it you'll does start sound to understand. Yeah. yeah, well, you'll start to understand and remember. But it was interesting to me how many high, reputable sources had articles and stuff on this guy for mm-hmm. something that's not taught in schools. I never heard of it as the catalyst for the war, but all the research I did, I was like, this directly impacted the start of the war. Um, yeah. So it was interesting to have so many high quality sources online about this and stuff. Um, so yeah. I'm going to start off, I guess, by kind of describing John Brown and then go into the events of Harper's Ferry because it is integral, like his raising and stuff, to mm-hmm. how he ended up being. Some people will argue that he is a terrorist. Um, and you know what? By modern standards and definitions, I can't completely argue with you. Um, but he saw that the country holding humans as slaves and pro- uh, like as human beings as property yeah. should be met with violence rather than perpetuating oppression, which is a yeah. big discussion. Like at what point does violence become terrorism and what point does it become activism? Well, I think that you see that same conversation again during the civil rights era Yes, and any movement. You see it. You saw it a lot during BLM. Yeah. BLM women's suffrage, like any yeah. movement that is, it's like, if you are that is dealing with people's rights, rights as individuals, what right do you have to mm-hmm. fight for them physically and yeah, militantly? Yeah, what point is too much, but, like, when people's rights are at stake, like, what point isn't, and, you know? Well, you know and then I mean? you think like, about what's actually happening, how physically, like, mm-hmm. horrific slavery was. It's yeah. like, wow. If any of those things called for violence. Physical violence. It's, it's slavery. slavery. Yeah. yeah. Jinx. <laughs> we jinxed hard there, but no. So yeah, I, I want to say that to keep that in mind that a lot, I think a lot of people don't talk about it because he did some very shady things, but like also, um, slavery, yeah, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. So he was born on May 9th, 1800 in Connecticut to a Calvinist family. John Brown was one of many children and their family could actually trace their lineage back through the American Revolutionary War where his grandfather died all the way back to the Mayflower in Plymouth. Wow. Like, so... Very American. If anyone had a right to be, like, a staunch, like... Americanist. Americanist? (laughs) I know. I was about to say, like... No, I can't say that. That has implications nowadays. It has implications. Well, no. Like, the the patriotism movement now is linked to the evangelical movement and all the things that... Nationalist. Nationalist is kind of what I was going to say. And then I was like, uh, I can't say that now. Yeah, maybe not. Yeah. Um, But the family eventually moved to Ohio out of the wilderness. Um, and... This has a lot of anti-slavery sentiments in Ohio, and I didn't realize that Ohio was so progressive at the time. But yeah, they at the were, time. yeah. Mm. Well, then you go to Ohio. What was I about to say? I don't. <laughs> now you go to Ohio, and it's like, oh, I don't actually flag up here. Oh, I don't actually know the demographics of Ohio. Ohio oh, very it's well. super conservative, I think, for the most part. Oh, it's rural. Well, know? I mean, to be fair, people would probably say the same thing about Texas. Well, yeah. One it's, of the, well, it's, it's rural. It's one of the rural. girls in our cohort, when I was talking to her this week, she's like, I had no idea there were, like, this many progressive people. And I was like, you have to find pockets. Well, after the, the night, the game night, oh, when yeah. we were talking about, like, the problems that our university has, how it's not progressive enough, all this stuff, she was talking to me, and she was like, I'm actually really excited. Like, I didn't realize there were that many progressive people in here. And I was like, you can find them. They, yeah, for sure. You'll usually find them in higher education. Yeah, yeah. Like, and you just have to look for the right people. Yeah, there's yeah. pockets. Um... So <laughs> the South is not a lost cause. It, yeah, like we're help us. Um, <laughs> so yeah, but out in Ohio at the time, at least, um, they're surrounded by other abolitionists. In fact, the father of Ulysses S. Grant worked for John Brown's father. Huh. So like, it's always weird to hear about all these people who were like 
involved in politics young yeah. and like had familial ties back to like the founding. It's just yeah. crazy because you realize how small some stuff actually was Absolutely, at this yeah. time. And interconnected and everything. Yeah. yeah. John Brown's father, Owen Brown, was a staunch abolitionist as well. He actually ran a house in the Underground Railroad. Hmm, awesome. Um, so, he, so John Brown was growing up directly exposed to the ideas of like revolution and fighting back. Yeah. Um, and when he, he couldn't really finish his elementary education where he was out in Ohio, so he ended up going somewhere to study under another staunch abolitionist there as well. And when he's 16, he leaves the family's tannery business to go study in the East and finish out more of, like, a higher education. At one point, it seems like he was thinking about going into the gospel ministry, but as he starts getting ready for college and stuff, it turns out that he has some sort of chronic inflammation in his eyes that made it hard for him to, like, study consistently or something. I wasn't quite sure what... I don't know if they know exactly what yeah. it was that bothered him or ailed him, but... It, he knew he wouldn't be able to like go through the full college kind of program. Mm-hmm. He taught himself instead to be a land surveyor and then ended up opening his own tannery with his adopted brother. And it, there is one thing about John Brown. He bounces around a lot, city to city, state to state, um, job to job. He, he doesn't really hold down. At one point he like announces bankruptcy and he's like, fine, put in <laughs> I prison. <declare>. Bankruptcy. <laughs> I didn't say it. I declared it. Um, <laughs> But uh, he, there's this little sweet widow who tends to bake him his bread and everything, and he convinces her to move to the log, uh, log cabin on his property and just kind of be his housekeeper. She moves in with her daughter, Dianth, and Brown ev- eventually marries this daughter, Dianth, in 1820. Dianth. Dianth. That's an interesting name. It's really pretty. I actually really like it. It's like Amaranth, yeah. but Dianth. I'm assuming that's how it's pronounced. It's D-I-A-N-T-H-E. Yeah. Diantha? That's how... Dianthi? Dianthi? Something Either way, it's really pretty, and I love it. Um, So Brown and this new family, after he marries her, they end up moving to New Richmond, Pennsylvania in 1825, which was actually even safer for fugitive slaves. And he was a feminist, too. He had all his sons doing work and chores on the same level as his daughters. Hell yeah. And I was like... Wow, we love progressive Listen, people. as someone who's been watching a lot of Wife Swap recently... Oh my gosh. Hulu, shout out Hulu. Um, the fact that he's there back then, and these people, the majority of them in um, Wife Swap, are not there in like 2005. I've that's... never actually watched a full episode of Wife Swap, but I'm convinced they purposefully choose people who Oh, they like, absolutely do. That are like complete opposites. Yeah. yeah, no, they do, and it's it's messy. It's Ooh. so good. You have love to come that. over and watch them. <laughs> I will. So they built a living space there um, with another tannery attached to it that had a room just for escaping slaves. Mm. So he's starting to partake in the Underground Railroad himself. So he's like intentional about this too. Oh yeah. Yeah, Like he planned. He was not roped Mm. into it his whole life. He has planned his whole life to make efforts for this. Good for him. Estimates say that over 2,000 slaves came through his property. Wow. So like man was in it to win it. Yeah. Um, cause he's on the way to Canada as well. So it's nice and easy to good stop. And he's also just big on his own communities and he helps establish post offices, churches, buildings, like all kinds of stuff. And he ends up being made the first postmaster of Randolph, Pennsylvania. And his whole life so far has been very open and accepting, not just on the front of the underground railroad, but around the indigenous population. He spent so much time with them that he started to learn some of their languages just by mm-hmm. exposure. He'd go out hunting with them. He'd have them in his own home. So this guy is like, literally does not give two shits as you shouldn't, but yeah. for the time that's radical. And that's like really progressive. Yeah. yeah. Very, um, pretty impressive too. Exactly. So remember different time contexts are a whole different world. We, yeah. Yeah. 
We shouldn't have now, to applaud that. Now we that. expect that of people, but... <laughs> You'd think. You'd think. You'd think, but... I expect that of people. I, yeah. <laughs> um, and people even at one point came to him and they're like, hey, you're a community leader. We need you to help drive indigenous populations off these lands. And he was like, huh, no. What, what, what do you think I'm doing here? Um, and his wife, Dianth, was also very religious like her husband. They have multiple children, but unfortunately she dies from childbirth complications in 1832, only 12 oh. years after they got married. Sad. Yeah. About a year after his first wife's death, I think she gave birth to like seven children. I don't oh. know if all of them survived into adulthood or what, but, um... I know at least enough of them survived where John Brown felt like he needed help with the family. And, yeah. and I mean, he probably also just didn't want to be alone and wanted company. So he marries Marianne Day. She, this is a little problematic. She's only 17 at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but, I mean, it wasn't uncommon. At least she's not, like, 14. Yeah, I was going to say. That's what I'm going to say. <laughs> no, it, it's not uncommon. It's, like, not, it's not uncommon. It's not great. But, but it could be worse, and it was yeah. 1830s. Yeah, so... so. Yeah, um, and they have, I think she had something like 12 children. Like, wow, woman was going for it. Whew, she really um, was. Yeah, and I mean, in a big family, like, I mean, we, we see it in my family tree as well. There are people that have more children because you need help on, like, the farm. Yeah, you need help absolutely. physically. Um, mm-hmm. It's it's workers. You're yeah, having workers. No, absolutely. You gotta raise them first, but, like, mm-hmm. they're workers. Listen, I've been playing The Sims Farming Pack, the new farming pack. Oh, my God. Cottage Living. And it's true, you have to have the kids to help you around the house. <laughs> there you go. There you go. As an expert now, I can say that. Nice. <laughs> so in 36, the family moves to Ohio, um, and Brown is still jumping around jobs, has some of those financial problems I was ex- talking about. Um, but in 1837, Elijah Lovejoy is married by a pro-slavery mob. Um, I don't know if y'all talked about him in public school. I Okay, I do know the name... Eliza yeah. Lovejoy, yes. Yeah, no, um, he was, I think, a preacher that was murdered by a pro-slavery mob. I just know that his, I just know his name as a catalyst, as, like, a martyr for yes. the abolition movement. Um, so, and when John Brown finds out that Elijah Lovejoy was murdered, he declares that he's going to spend his entire life to destroying the institution of slavery. Not that this guy wasn't already doing a good, a good job of trying, but, like, now he's declared it. He is riled up. Yeah. Um... And unfortunately, a lot of his children have died from either dysentery, just, mm. you know, normal stuff in this time period. It's like playing Oregon Trail. It's a hit or miss. Um, but he and the surviving members of his family move out to Springfield, Massachusetts. And they find a lot of people there are also anti-slavery. In fifty, in 1850, the U.S. passes the Fugitive Slave Act, which, for those of y'all who don't know what that yeah. one is... Basically, it's very complicated, but in the basic level, it says that people in free states can take freed slaves, return them to the South, and, like, like sell them. Yeah, essentially, it legalizes slavery in all 50 states. Or is that the Dred Scott's decision? Well, I mean, all of these had a contributing factor to that, but, like, this one especially is, basically, because you can be free walking around in the free North, and someone's like, you know... I think you used to be... I think you're escaped yeah. without any proof. Or, and in theory, you were hmm, supposed similar to... Similar to certain things that are happening in the state, which we currently are. Oh, no. Oh, no! Ah, uh, my brain just made the connection. Uh-huh. The pulling people over who might have COVID just based on their race. No, no, I'm talking about abortion. Oh, I thought you were talking about the rule that was passed that said if you see someone... 
that looks like they could be an illegal immigrant that could be sick, that you too. can pull them over. Because that then too. you can literally pull over anyone of color. And that also uh, is a thing in Arizona, too. Yeah, you can pull over anyone of color and claim COVID as the reason you're stopping them and literally uh-huh. just force them to... Sh- oh, I don't like any of this. Ooh, there's a lot of... We can have a chat we about that later. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hey, man. Um, what a great time to be a history person. Wow. We can write a really good continuity change over time essay. We could. We could. <laughs> huh, maybe that's... No, we already have our essay topics for that class. Oh, shit, you're right. Yeah. Ugh, um, lame. <laughs> yeah. So, John Brown realizes how absolutely bullshit this free uh, this Fugitive Slave Act is and how it's basically a cover for legalizing slavery everywhere. And in return, he forms a group called the League of Gileadites who run around basically making sure that people aren't recapturing freed Hell slaves. Yeah. Um and it's incredibly effective. Apparently, like, his little <laughs> town, like, manages to basically scare off, like, any bounty hunters at all. Oh, I love all. that. I love that. Yeah. So, he's, he's going all this in. This man is like, I'm going to take matters into my own hands. Yeah. He's, he's like, like not in do? my town. Um, down in Kansas at this time period, bleeding Kansas is going on. Which, for those of y'all who don't know about that, there's a lot. I'm realizing now how many facets there are leading into the Civil War. Oh, absolutely. That's why if we ever did a Civil War episode, it would have to, it would be ten parts. Yeah, because there's Compromise of 1850, there's Dred Scott, there's Dred Scott, Bleeding Kansas. There's literally so much. There's so many, yeah. Yeah. Um, So, Bleeding Kansas is basically when the state is about to break out into its own Civil War. Mm. The tensions between... Um, anti-slavery and pro-slavery is basically starting their own their own war. Um, some of Brown's adult sons and their families were actually down there already, and they let him know. They're like, things are getting really bad. We're completely unprepared for attacks. So Brown is like, okay, guess it's time for me to head to Kansas and packs up his stuff and heads down there. Um, along the way, they're kind of not campaigning, but they're like, hey, we're headed down to Kansas. We're bringing the abolitionist movement with us. And they're getting financial support, donations, even physical mm-hmm. donations of, like, goods and wares and stuff. Yeah. Brown is watching tension and conflict in Kansas get worse and worse when the pro-slavery people... God, imagine literally having to have the title pro-slavery. That's like... Yikes. Ew. <laughs> um, they sack Lawrence, Kansas... And destroy an abolished newspaper, or a couple of them, some anti-slavery institutions, and I mean, when you sack a town, you you you, dis- you try to destroy yeah, it. Yeah. Um, uh-huh. And Brown talks about how there's like a total lack of response from other abolitionists in the area, and he's like, "Guys, you're in the middle of basically a civil war here in Kansas. Why aren't you doing anything? Why aren't you fighting back? Why aren't you at least talking about it enough?" Mm-hmm. And he decides they're not being aggressive enough, and that they're being cowards. And this is where he, like, takes divine-inspired vengeance. On the night of May 24th into the morning of the 25th in 1856, three days after the sacking of Lawrence, Kansas, John Brown and some other abolitionists band together with some swords and grab five professional slave hunters and pro-slavery militants, drag them out of their cabins, and hack them to death. Oh. Well... And it's like... That is a dilemma, isn't That's it? problematic. Because you can't say they're unprovoked. I mean, they sacked Lawrence, Kansas, burned and down a bunch of places. And slave bounty hunters. Like, slave yeah. hunters. And it's like... But also, like, However, hacking someone to death... That's a little... Is a little maybe just, like, you know... But there's also no judicial like, system. Maybe just cut their heads off. We don't need to hack anyone. Oh, God. You know? <laughs> just hang them. 
but there's I mean, easier ways, cleaner what, ways to do that. <laughs> there's, it's just like weird because there is no judiciary system in place to punish these people who sacked a whole city on pro-slavery grounds. Yeah, and like no one's gonna take retribution. Yeah, so they did it themselves, which I I'm not here for hacking people apart, guys. Don't don't take me wrong. I'm not saying that we need to get mad at someone and go Absolutely. hack them apart in a field. But Absolutely, vigilante justice. I mean, I do when like that. When it's actually justified. And, like, not yeah. just, you know, but it's morally clear. How, don't kill anyone. Yes. Like, this is not us endorsing. God, we're going to bury ourselves <laughs> in a hole. <laughs> Y'all know what we mean. Y'all know what we mean. <laughs> yeah. Um, if you're listening to this, you're, if you're on this episode with us, you understand where we're coming from. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know us by now. But just to, just so our future lawyers maybe don't get mad at us. This is, this for is, legal reasons. We are not telling anyone to kill anyone. Yeah. <laughs> not even for legal reasons just, no, for, just, normal, for, normal just reasons. for normal reasons <laughs> oh good lord <laughs> good lord bird maybe we shouldn't have a podcast <laughs> yeah I'm not saying yeah we are not saying to kill anyone um, we're just saying do I do not I hate with... what's happening yes do well, I agree with the reasoning yes do I agree with the... murder no yeah do I agree with how you did it no, no. do I agree with maybe some pushier yeah. Yeah. You know, they literally sacked a whole city. So like, yeah. no, hmm. I mean, they, they're not great guys. Yeah. Period. So, wow. That was probably our worst tangent yet. Anyway. Um, what a bet. <laughs> yeah. So as far as bleeding Kansas goes though, hacking five slave hunters and militant slave owners, um, starts the bloodiest part of the bleeding canvas, uh, time. Period. Yeah. At least 29 people would be killed by the end of the next three months from back and forth retaliation and conflict. Wow. Uh, so many... John Bryan's involved in so many other skirmishes in this time, just between everyone fighting and everyone disagreeing, um, including the Battle of Blackjack, where they take... They took some prisoners, and Brown promised to do a prisoner exchange so that he could get two of his sons back in return for some of the people he captured during... Uh-huh. The Battle of Blackjack. So, like, there's... This is a very politically informed in multiple ways. His sons are with him. Like, they're yeah. getting taken captured, too. Um, in this time, also, John W. Reed heads into Kansas from Missouri and is making his way towards the Osawatomi. Uh, towards Osawatomi. Sorry, not the Osawatomi. Osawatomi. Um, so that he can destroy some of the free state settlements there and end the pro-slavery movement and just keep going up to Topeka and Lawrence. So basically he's, he's leading a whole army to advocate for slavery and, you know, destroy stuff in his past. Mm-hmm. This is when one of John Brown's sons is shot and killed. Um, Brown and his group basically set up in the forest waiting to ambush these forces, these pro-slavery forces. And, they're seriously outnumbered, but they managed to pick off a few of the pro-slavery people in that little makeshift army before Brown's forces are for- forced to scatter into the woods. The people from Missouri that had been on this march up northwards basically burned Osawatomi Tommy to the ground, um, but a lot of northern abolitionist- abolitionists are finally starting to pay attention, and they're like, oh, well, we should be doing something. Right? <laughs> it's about time. Um... And they also see Brown and his people, his son included, who died, as very valiant to be so outnumbered and still attempt to stop a pro-slavery mm-hmm. send, like group, you know, and stand up so thoroughly to it. Yeah. 
So the next big event in in John Brown's life, I can't say that there weren't other big events, but the biggest notable one that I'm going to talk about is Harper's Ferry. Gotcha. Here it comes. Brown has been preparing for a physical escalation for a very long time. Like, it's likely he had these plans before his sons ever even moved down to Kansas and got involved there. They think that for decades he was prepared to take militant physical action and he had just kind of been, like, biding his time almost. Yeah. He had been very careful his whole life about who he talked to, of course, because you you can't have loose lips yeah, sinking exactly. ships. Yeah. Like mm, say that ten times fast. Loose lips sinking ships. No. Loose loose lips sink ships. Well. Yeah. Yeah. Um <laughs> and so he even spent a long time trying to convince Frederick Douglass to join him in his raid on Harper's yeah. Ferry. Uh, Douglas was like, dude, that's a suicide mission. Like, I'm doing yeah. a lot here. I, like, I admire your gumption and all that, but that's a yeah. suicide mission and I'm making a difference where I am. Yeah, that would be my thing about the whole white savior thing. I'll let you finish your story and then I'll make my decision. But there is the problem of the white guy being so gung-ho for this, but then the black people who are also leaders in this movement being like, hey, that's not great for our community right now. Right, like this isn't what needs to be done. Yeah, and our people are going to be put in danger if you do this. Yeah. That's where it becomes a little problematic. Of the white savior, yeah. Yeah, a little white savior-y. But I'll let you finish and then we Well, no, that's exactly, you're you're kind of on the path that makes me hesitate there. Um, Because like, you need you need pe- you need allies. You need visible allies in movements because yeah. it inspires other people to realize I can ally with this movement. I can support you know anti-slavery, human mm-hmm. rights. I can do this even if I'm not a part of that community. I can support that community through other ways. Yeah. But it's not necessarily true that those ways should be militant. Yeah. Was that thunder? That is literally thunder. Yeah. What the hell is this? And there's rain? like blue skies. I'm not sure what's happening. I checked the there's like no rain all forecasted day. for the next like ten days. Um, Welcome to Texas where you get sun showers and women's bodies under control. Um, So, back to John Brown. Yeah. I used to try, I used to think we weren't going to make this podcast political. (laughs) (laughs) Right? There's no way. You can't talk about history. Yeah, absolutely not. Which is why the CRT stuff is such bullshit. But, I mean, you see the same thing happening with Black Lives Matter stuff because so many people are like, I'm going to organize a protest and it's going to be for Black Lives Matter and And allies. And and that's why a lot of people... And then the black people who are actually in the community and being like, hey, that's not great for our community. Yeah. You see it in like... I think it was a problem one of the sundown towns around Houston. Oh. Um, where, like, they were like, we're going to take a stand, and they can't do anything about it. And then the people who actually live in the town were like, hey, that's going to make things worse for us. Yeah. You need to stop. Because the retribution is going to be aimed at us uh-huh. and not at you. And you can just leave. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, problematic. Yeah. Yeah, well, and I've heard that discussion around some LGBTQ activists who are like, there's no such thing really as an ally. Like, yeah. you can be a supporter, you can you can help us advance our message, but at the same time, like, it, there's a whole discussion about yeah. it. So, no, there really is. And it's always changing, which is why Not it's important to stay discourse. involved. Yeah. Yes. Um, anyway, so, yeah, Frederick Douglass is like, boy, you're going to get, you're going to get killed. Yeah. Um, Brown still thinks, though, that if he can lead one huge insurrection and do it very strategically, that he could deal a huge blow to the Southern institution of slavery. Like, just pull the rug out from underneath its feet, basically. He holds a meeting with other abolitionists to kind of, like, explain his ideas, and they establish this type of constitution. Hey, Kat, not to interrupt, but um, did you know that your shirt is on Inside Out? (laughs) (laughs) I went into the library like this. (laughs) 
you just noticed, hopefully no one else noticed. I'm sure no one else noticed. Because I wasn't wearing this at work. I was wearing a dress at work. Okay. Today, so at least, no, it's, at least it's not all day. <laughs> yeah, no, hopefully hopefully my the girl I'm working with would have said something. But um, that's iconic. Yeah, thank you for telling me before I um, saw my dad later. Yeah, you're welcome. I um, wasn't going to let you walk out of here like that. Thank you. Yeah. I fixed it. Um, <laughs> okay, sorry. Yeah, continue. no. <laughs> good call. Um, so yeah, they basically write their own constitution for the people of the U.S. Um, he's commander-in-chief of this little temporary government, obviously. Uh-huh. He's getting funding from other abolitionist efforts. So this is like a whole like, thing. Oh, he's like setting wow. himself up like a legal, like almost... He's like going to be president in this new... And I don't think his goal was to ever develop a new U.S. I think it was just this like, what's the term? Provincial government? Oh, it means like temporary. Um uh interim interim not interim there's a word that starts with p that i'm not thinking of um uh, i but uh, i guess he was thinking well if we're gonna have this revolution I say, something I'm, needs to catch the fallout because well yeah exactly he's not yeah. like saying i want to be the leader of it when we're said and done it's like if we're going to have a movement of people making a physical effort we need to be organized we need to have a set of rules for ourselves and i will which is fair charge that that's, yeah yeah it's a good way to keep your message uh-huh. and your And that's how, like, ideals. if you do have a revolution and the government does fall, then who knows who's going to come exactly. in after. Exactly. You need, you need is, some planning. Yeah, exactly. Um, maybe it is interim. I don't know. But, yeah, he's getting funding and everything. There's six very wealthy abolitionists that are backing him, and they pay for most of the funding that went into Harper's Ferry. They're known as the Secret Six. Ooh. It was a very no questions asked toward sort of situation organization where apparently he would just kind of be like, hey, I need some of that money. And they would supply it in good faith that he was spending it in an effective way because they trusted him that he was a good man his whole life. He actively was going to spend this on efforts, not himself. Yeah. Um, and people start supplying him with weapons as well as he's just campaigning almost to go around. And as he's going around he's seeing a lot of people that they seem to think it's a really good idea and he's vocally supporting them and he starts to think that like verbal support is physical participation i think and that's where this kind of goes i think he overestimated Mm. the the amounts willing because you can get someone really fired up at a speech and they can be throwing their money at you and jumping up and down and waving their fists but they're not in the in the field thick of it they haven't had that cool down period of the week Mm -hmm. marching towards their destination where they can start second guessing themselves and so i think that would eventually be a part of his downfall is that he's seeing so much support but yeah. That's in the north where he's camp- like walking yeah. around campaigning, no, not true. not in the south where people would actually have to follow him and take action. Mm-hmm. And I think also there's probably a disconnect between the amount of people he's seeing as giving support and the amount of people physically it's, needed. Yeah, percentage. To Percentages yeah. are vastly different in that uh-huh. situation. Yeah. yeah. So there's some people that start to kind of feel out this plan, and one of the reasons that's one of the reasons that John Brown starts to go grow out his beard actually because there are people that are like. This dude's planning something. Like, like anti-abolitionists. Like, gotcha. pro-slavery people who are, like, catching on a little bit that something's yeah. weird going is going on. So he's, like, growing out his beard. He starts to, like, go around a little bit more on the down low. Um, mm-hmm. If you hear me moving a lot, I apologize. I'm sitting on the coffee table with our mic between us on my ironing board so that we can both access it. <laughs> so I'm shifting a little bit. Hey, um, it's a, it, it is what it is. One of those days. And... Along this kind of campaign route, he also meets Harriet Tubman, and a lot of people are signing this constitution and saying they'll join him, and then there's this one big threat of direct exposure. I think, I'm not exactly sure who it was, but someone close to him was like, hey, um, I'm going to tell people or something, and then a sec- secret six 
suddenly are like, we need to postpone. We're freaked mm-hmm. out. We don't want to get exposed. You know, Brown knows that he needs more support to undertake this big deal, though. And he decides to lead a smaller raid on his own on December 20th that liberates over 10 people. And uh, he takes in captives, horses and wagons and supplies and all this stuff. But yeah, this also means that in the process, he was so gung-ho and unwilling to wait for the Secret Six in organization that now the governor of Missouri has placed a bounty on his head for this small little raid. Come on, man. I know. And what's interesting is that John Brown is not the most aggressive abolitionist there is. We know of others that were far more, like, uh, like willing towards violence. Yes, John Brown was aggressive, but what's interesting is that there are people who are actively advocating for stuff like blowing up churches. Yeah. And, and there's always going to be the extremists in every group who believe that you literally can't solve anything without violence, which mm-hmm. is where John Brown ended up after years of watching nothing happen. Um, but even he, he didn't seem to like the idea of hurting, um, civilians. Yeah. Like if you notice the people he targeted were slave owners or militant (laughs) bounty hunters, sorry, and stuff like that. So even that was too much for him. He was like, no, we can't go that far. And instead he he asks Tubman to start helping him collect people like that would be willing to fight and help him. So he's got a direct connection to Harriet Tubman at this point. Um, and it's leaving him to firmly believe that there are these people who will rise up and join him if he's going to spark this powder keg. Yeah. And the problem is that all these supporters he's been collecting on the way don't show up at the same numbers as he expected. Yeah. Um, and that's a blow to his ego, I think, but also he's like, we've come this far, we're not stopping. So there's this bad mix of pride and, well, we got to do it now or never, et cetera, et cetera. And the plan was to attack Harper's Ferry Armory, take the weapons that were hidden there, and head south to collect slaves from plantations as they went by, only in theory fighting in self-defense, but taking all these slaves from the plantations, handing them weapons, and causing the literal idea of slavery to collapse, but also to tank the economy in the south. Because if all your slaves leave your farm, you literally... Which is why a lot of plantations did struggle after the end of the war, because... Mm -hmm. I mean, they had slavery 2.0, which is tenant farming. Yeah. But, like, some of them really, they relied 100% on slave, unpaid labor. Yeah, absolutely. So. And tenant farming, as shitty as it was, is still not slavery. In some places it was, In some places it was, but they're still having to provide more than they were before. You know what I mean? Yeah. Still not a living or decent wage. It's still not absolutely anything that it should have been. We're not defending tenant farming in any way. No, absolutely not. But it was... In, in a way, a step up from slavery. It was, so, like, not quite a step up. It was, like, you know that half step in houses yeah. from, like, the leveled, yeah, like the, the sunken entry. living room? Yeah. It's, it's not a step. It's this little stumbling thing. Yeah, it's, um, like, barely better, but it is more than just forcing people to work for free. Yeah. Yeah. Um. So, yeah, the... Uh-oh, I accidentally scrolled my notes. Uh-oh. Oh, no, we're good. Okay. So yeah, if he could, he was like, if I can cripple even economically just a little bit of the southern states, the North weren't going to come to war. Can like crush them? They're yeah. not going to have anything going for them. Yeah, I mean that's that's sound reasoning. Yeah, I'd say yeah. yeah. And so he rents a farmhouse in Maryland, cross across the Potomac from Harper's Ferry, as their like headquarters. So they head down into the town of Harper's Ferry one night, and they don't have as much trouble getting in as they expected. They're in the armory. They're like, oh well. 
thanks, I guess. They take about 60 hostages from leaders around the local area and they start spreading the word to slaves saying like, join us now, join us now. Your, your big slave owners, the people high up in the government, local government who would stop you, they're hostages right now. You have a chance. Um, and I think they really overestimated how much how, the safety that would come in that because these people are still terrified. Like yeah. slaves know it's not just like you might have them hostage now, but if they get out and they know which of us helped you or mm-hmm. they know which of us like, like we're, we're dead men walking. Absolutely. Yeah. Like the fear factor. And also uh-huh. it's not Stockholm syndrome, but like being in that situation for so long, yeah. the fear doesn't, is not, no, is not logical anymore. No, absolutely not. Um, I'd say it's a type of Stockholm syndrome. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. There's a term for it. And I'm not thinking of it right now. I apologize. Yeah. But um, a train is headed through town. And I don't know why. Because they had cut the telegraph wires so that the people in town couldn't call for help from the outer areas. Uh-huh. And this train is passing through Harper's Ferry. John Brown stops it, but then lets it go. Okay. He lets it continue on. And at the next station, it stops at... There's a working telegraph. Mm. Um, so the train lead, the train conductor uh, sends a telegram to his headquarters, who then contacts President Buchanan and the Virginia governor, and <laughs> is like, um, do you know what's going on in Harper's Ferry right now? Like, you should probably... Uh, and it doesn't take long for word to spread about what's happening. Unfortunately, some of the locals had already managed to hold back Brown and his men by finding vantage points around the armory. There's also a militia in this town, and they take the bridge, preventing men's, Brown's men from moving back out, and they can't escape now. Brown takes the hostages and what's left of his own forces into the fire engine house, which is at the front of the armory. He bars the doors and does his best to barricade them in there, and when they kind of start to realize that there's no coming out of this, like we're not winning this, yeah. you know, we have to, we have to do something. Brown mm-hmm. sends out one of his sons, Watson, and a number, another member, another member with the white flag, and the mob outside shoots them. Mm. And his son Oliver, who was also with him, takes gunfire and ends up dying. It doesn't take long for the other. Um, Military, but this time it's not like a militia. It's not like a homegrown thing. It's it's actual Marines who were under uh, ugh, Lee's command. Ugh, Robert E. Lee. Robert E. Lee. That guy sucks. I know. Should have <laughs> fought for the North. Like, bro, you would be on the better side of history. Yeah, dumbass. Literally had offers from both. Mm-hmm. He literally chose because he grew up in Bama. Mm, okay, well, I'm done with this. Loser. Idiot. Also, kind <laughs> of an asshole for fighting for a cause that was still about slavery. Um, yeah, yeah. For sure. And they try to coax Brown out, Brown out at first and his men saying, like, oh, hey, if you come out now, we won't, like, murder you necessarily. And Brown is like, no, I'm good here. Thanks. No, actually, um, um, I'm really good where I'm here and I know I'm going to stay alive for yeah. sure, for sure. <laughs> well, and then unfortunately they start breaking down the door. And yeah. I think that's when Brown, Brown is probably like, uh, okay. Um, yeah. And it only takes a few minutes for the Marines to flood in there and take Brown and the surviving members captive. From what I read, Brown got beaten pretty badly during Ugh. this part. Um, the abolitionist, ten, Brown, sorry, I can't talk today. Um, so the abolitionists, Brown's men, um, they had killed four people and wounded at least double that. And at least ten of Brown's own men were killed, though, while a few others escaped and the rest were captured with him. Hmm. So when it comes to the trial, it's interesting. 
Resident Buchanan wants nothing to do with it, really, since slave insurrections aren't a federal crime, mm. since it's a southern thing, not necessarily a northern thing that has, gotcha. like, a... And he does also doesn't want to bring the abolitionist's anger towards the government any more than he already has. Yeah. So, Brown is charged with murdering four white people and one black person, treason against the Commonwealth of Virginia for slave insurrection. His lawyers couldn't do much because, I mean, it was pretty obvious. You can't lie about what everyone saw. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But they did, interest, this was really interesting. They argued that he didn't commit treason because he wasn't from that state and he owed it no loyalty. So oh. there's no treason if you have no loyalty. That's fair. Which is an interesting take. I was like, yeah. it feels like a stretch, but like you tried really hard. I like, mean, yeah, it's something. Yeah. It's something. So you can't be loyal, loyal to a place you don't care about and commit uh -huh. treason by betraying them That's if you don't true. care about them. That is true. Um, and they did argue that they also didn't commit treason because, um, Brown didn't necessarily kill anyone himself, but then they were probably like, uh, we don't know exactly where bullets landed, like, you know, yeah. like, it, we don't have the ballistic forensics mm -hmm. that we have now, mm -hmm. so I don't think that was much of a shot, that line of questioning. Yeah. And they did say, though, that you, like, he, okay, this is weird, but that he didn't leave a, lead a slave insurrection, he didn't insurrect them because he didn't directly go out and recruit slaves beforehand. He didn't plan this with them. Gotcha. He planned it with other people gotcha. and then just allowed, was going to allow slaves to join as he went. And since mm. obviously, I mean, obviously it didn't work. So there was no planning. Yeah. Like, and that's how they validate it. Like there was obviously no predisposition here because it didn't work. If there had been predisposition, like not True. predisposition, pre-planning, they yeah. would have survived. You know, it would have worked. Yeah. So I feel like that's a little more a little more likely to work, but still does I mean, not work. I mean, they're all reaches, but what else can they do? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Unfortunately, Brown is found guilty on all counts um, and is sentenced to hanging. It was one of the first trials in the U.S. to be nationally reported on, hmm. and it drew not just, like, media attention, but physically drew people there. In fact, John Wilkes Booth was there. Huh. He kind of, like, snuck in. Interesting. Um, Brown was surprisingly chill about this, and... You had to, like, wait a month between when you sentenced someone and when it was carried out. Mm -hmm. And in that time, he's in jail. And he talks about how he was an old man anyway. He wasn't going to live much longer. And at I least, feel like he's devoted his life to this cause yeah, one way or the other. Yeah, he's probably, like, dying for it. It's not yeah. that big a deal. I was prepared to die for it every time I got shot at. So uh -huh. what's the difference? Uh -huh. um, but he also acknowledges that, like, I, I physically couldn't live much longer, but this is going to make my legacy lives so much longer he's like i i'm gonna be yeah. a martyr like i can make the most of this mm -hmm. um and i mean the other survivors are suffering the same fate the same sentence and brown um before his execution hands off a note that says i john brown am now sorry this is a quote i should say quote mm -hmm. i john brown am now quite certain that the crimes of this guilty land will never be purged away but with blood mm. end quote which i find really interesting and sometimes yeah. it sometimes it feels that way like no, sometimes you just feel so helpless that like how can people not see basic human rights mm -hmm. but yeah. um this is so this whole month where people were paying attention to him and stuff and he could write answer letters talk about abolition and get a ton of like attention just yeah. in general yeah. and then those final words kind of became immortalized and it mm -hmm pisses off the southerners i bet it does uh-huh because i think they were probably like ah oh, he's in jail 
This guy can't do anything now. And meanwhile, he's straight up leading like his own right abolitionist movement. Yeah. Um, well, that's the thing. I mean, we've seen it over and over again. People think, oh, you throw him in jail and it's going to stop. I know it's, but a, it it's a martyrdom. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, and it gets a lot of support in the North, obviously. And there were even, it seemed like going to be efforts to save him or break him out of the jail cell because all of a sudden all these Northern groups of people start coming to town and like mm. some militia men from the North show up and people were really worried that they were going to try to like break him out. I mean, even on his way to his execution and stuff, he was like escorted with like hot, heavy guards and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, but after he was hanged, his body was brought back to his home where it was buried. Um, and I mean, even when the family sold off the farm, they didn't sell off the burial plot. Um, which also means they had to bring his body way back up to the north on trains and stuff, which mm-hmm. his wife had been down there for the execution. Um, yeah. And she traveled with the body back home. Mm-hmm. So in the aftermath, um, huge inspiration to the war as a martyr, obviously. Union soldiers sang a song called John Brown's Body all the time um, as they went into battle that was later adapted into the rhythm or the melody of the battle hymn of the Republic. Huh. Tubman claimed that he did more for black people than Lincoln, which is interesting when you think about the white savior complex about approval and like, well, we all know perspective and and like, well, Well, like maybe we don't all know about Lincoln. Lincoln was actually not uh, an abolitionist. That is 100% for another episode though. Yeah. (laughs) Lincoln was not, here to free the slaves. Lincoln was just kind of riding that way. Did he sign the paperwork that in yes. theory did it? Yes. Was he here for that intent? He was here to try to oh. reunite a nation that had broken apart. Yeah. And he took the best path he could think of. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, but many Northern writers were at his execution and memorial, wrote about it and extolled about it. We're talking like, like, like famous writers. Um, and, it also ignited what the, this extremist movement um, of of John Brown's inspired the North to start moving south and yeah. allowed the war to start and Lincoln to settle the score. And it all makes for a very problematic discussion about like violence and what role it has in human rights and sticking up for people who can't insurrect on their own or mm-hmm. like trying to give them the chance. Like, yeah. Yeah. And obviously historiography wise because we always got to talk about it the south hated brown for so long yeah so long uh-huh. um they literally built a statue to the white man that hit the first white man that his raid killed and like refused to acknowledge him as like uh and i mean it is your take personally on if he's a terrorist or not um or if his actions were justified but there are always critics about peace and everything it's been over the past few years that john brown has really started being talked about again in the controversial light, I think, because we've got this resurgence of Southern, like the lost yeah. cause in the South here. We're seeing a lot of that narrative. However, discreetly, even if it's not under the name of the lost cause, some of that, like holding back, like CRT, not being able to talk about that. John Brown, for a hot second there, had some good appreciation. And I think it's a controversial opinion again, which is why a public schools, yeah. at least in my experience, tend to say, John Brown led a raid on Harper's Ferry. I tried to bring like the slave rebellion and that's it. Yeah, I feel like that was the extent that yeah. I knew about that. Yeah. yeah. It was like a, a one flashcard on yeah. a test. Uh-huh. Um, uh-huh. Because you, you, it's a very complex conversation and yeah. you need... It's, it's not... I mean, you can debate it. Everyone has the right to debate it and learn it in high school and stuff. But, like, it does take learning and understanding of the context of yeah. intersectionality, of all these other things, to educatedly discuss that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so... 
Some say he, you know, started the war, but some, and, and caused millions of deaths, but some people say, you know, he was killing slavery, and, you know, yeah. and that was worth the cost. Uh -huh. So, um, yeah, I wanted to end on, there's, there's more I could talk about, but, like, just being a progressive person his whole life is yeah. a sort of endearing thing. I mean, that in my perception of him, that is almost a radical thing, too, to, at the uh, time, yeah. to be mm -hmm. so intersectional and inclusive. But, like, when I said that there were northern authors at his execution memorial, I wasn't kidding. Henry David Thoreau oh. actually was one of them. HDT! Yeah, our, our man. Um, <laughs> one person's man. One of our own professors. <laughs> uh, yeah, I was going to say, uh. Um, he wrote, I heard to be sure that he had been hanged, but I did not know what that meant. And not after many numbers of number of days shall I believe it. Of all the men who are said to be my contemporaries, it seems to me that John Brown is the only one who has not died. Hmm. Which is, he's right. He was the martyr. Yeah, he he was carried on. into every battlefield and song and campfire stories and inspiration. Yeah. And, and that's, I mean, you can form your own opinion about individual pieces were obviously not the best move individual actions he took were too violent but at the end of the day you have to you know can you pick someone's life life apart as a whole or in pieces and that's that's a discussion that not everyone's going to agree on yeah and yeah, i don't I even know what i think about it to be honest there are pieces yeah. of me that are like slavery was never going to be peacefully resolved yeah and it wasn't it, it was not yeah um no, and especially when you build a whole region's economy off of, off of slave something labor. like slavery, yeah. it's not going to end pretty. Mm -hmm. Because as we've learned, if we've learned anything over the past year and a half, um, economy trumps literally everything. Yeah. Um, the economy will always, in a capitalistic society like this will one. Will always be valued over human life. Yes. Um, and it was that way in the 1800s, 1700s, and it is that way now. Yeah. But, I mean, yeah. I don't know. I feel like that's... that. It's, it's, it would that is a very conversation. Big, yeah. But that was really good, Kat. That was Thank really you. good. Thank I you. feel like I learned a lot. I mean, good. I always do. But good. especially today. I'm excited to watch The Good Lord Bird now and, like, knowing that. And maybe it'll inform my opinion a little more. But... Yeah. Like you said, there's... I mean, there's discussions past just was it right or wrong. Like, what does it do mm -hmm. for the white savior complex? What does it mean for the rest of the efforts of the war? What... Mm -hmm. Yeah, so... Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. No, that was really good. Thank you. Well, yeah. I'm ready to hear about some murders. Okay, sorry we had to take a little break there to get everything situated. Make sure that our mic had been recording for the last hour. As far as I know, it it, it, it was. Um, yeah. <laughs> let's hope. It stays let's let's hope. Um, if not, then you'll hear it in an emergency episode. <laughs> um, well, we record that. Yep. Ugh. Okay. Well, as Kat said... Um, we're going to get into some murders, except not, we're not doing that. We're not doing that. that. Not that part. Not that part. We're talking about the other parts of The other Charles parts of Hansen. this. Yes. Um, we did the murders last week. If you're here for true crime, then go to last week's episode. Yes. Number 31. 30. 30. 30. Yeah. So, um, as I just said, I'm not going to go into murders. And honestly, last episode, this is not a true crime podcast. So yeah. I didn't cover the murders in full detail. If you want that information, you can find it in other places. I'm sure my favorite murder has it. Absolutely. And that's probably, why drink probably has it. Yeah. Probably dozens of podcasts. I know for sure the Wikipedia article has a very 
very detailed description of the murder of um, what happened on those two nights. So the information is out there. I will not be relaying it. Um, in fact, I won't be talking about the murders at all very much this week. Um, this week is very much more about the kind of psychology behind Manson, how he got to where he was, and how he convinced over 100 people to follow him pretty much blindly. Um yeah, so quick recap of last episode. We went over kind of his storyline, um, timeline kind of things. And we also discussed the two big murders. There, Those were not the only murders committed by the Manson family. However, they are the most, in in pop culture, they are the most, in, honestly, in the, in, in the history of this event, yeah. the most impactful murders that the... Um, the Manson family committed. Um, so there's uh, several reasons why those were kind of the ones that were plucked out. Um, and everyone tends to focus on yeah. also just how gruesome they were. It's yeah. really, it's very really upsetting. Yeah. yeah. Um, especially with a literal movie star being involved in yeah. being a victim of one of them. So, um, yeah. So let's get into kind of the more psychology, if you want to call it that side, I am not a psychologist, so bear with me the here. Brain stuff. Brain stuff, yes. Um, So, if you remember from last episode, Manson in the 60s is kind of spending that whole decade just floundering. He's in and out of jail. He becomes involved in... Writing his music. He's trying to write music. He's trying to learn guitar. Um, He becomes involved in being a pimp. Um, and he actually does marry one of the women that he's pimping out. Has a kid with that woman. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Brain. Um, it, is it? No. No. Okay. I, I was like, it was is it two, raining? I thought it was two for a second, but no, it looks like the rain is moving to the towns around us, like forming in there, but something was hitting my window. Yeah. I don't know. Probably another. We put some lights up outside there. and it was windy earlier. And like, since we put lights up, I had never heard them hit the wall before. Oh. And I was like. What's happening out there? Yeah, it probably is. That explains it. It's yeah. probably just gonna blow right through because it and always it's does. It's forming on the back side of our our like highway, so it's not gonna hit us. Absolutely not. Yeah. Um, yeah. So he spends the better part of the '60s kind of bouncing around. This Miss Man's life has never been stable, and it continues to not be stable. Um, but also in the '60s, while he's in and out of jail. Uh, he's using that time to kind of perfect his skills as a manipulator. And I did talk about this a little bit Mm. last episode. Um, And he also spends that time developing this weird obsession with the Beatles, which to be fair, it was the sixties. And so was it literally when else, everyone else on the planet was also obsessed with the Beatles in the sixties. It was no joke. Yeah. Like that would be a good episode. Mm -hmm. Um, However, um, his kind of, he, let me, hold on, let me see how to word, word this. So he was always manipulative. In fact, um, teachers of his from when he was a kid, when asked about it, they're like, yeah, he was really standoffish. But um, the one time when he was super, you know, approachable, nice, um, actually engaged with other children is when they could give something to him. Mm-hmm. So he has these tendencies from day one, basically. He's a manipulator from the beginning. However, he realizes that if he wants to control people the way that he wants to control people, he needs to fine tune those skills. Yeah. And one way he approaches this is by studying religion. Um, 
not only for um, teaching, because a lot of his messaging is based off of Christianity, and he does, in fact, at some point call himself the Messiah, because uh, what cult leader... I was about to say, it's the standard protocol. <laughs> I know, I just, whatever. like, at this point, if you're not a cult leader if you don't think you're Messiah. No, <laughs> um, obviously not. So, obviously, there's some, like, Christianity influences in there, and he definitely uses a lot of um, that imagery when he's kind of spewing this BS mm-hmm. of the race war and everything he's determined to, that will happen. Um, but he also is studying the way that religions have controlled people. Specifically, he is disc- studying how... Uh-huh. No, sorry, I'm saying uh-huh okay. to you because I have a feeling where this is going. Yeah, do you know what I'm about to say? He's say studying it. how Scientology... Yep, that was my guess. Yep, is controlling people, which I think is really interesting because Scientology is still kind of not... It's the 60s. It's the yeah. late 60s. So, like, I, they weren't founded very far before yeah. this. I, I know L. Ron Hubbard was still publishing books in, like, the 50s. Yeah. So I was kind of surprised that they're already seen as this, like, force, like, controlling force enough to, to catch his attention. Yeah. And for it to be, like, like for that to be worthy of study. established enough. Yeah. Yeah, system. And he can, he's able to, like, identify that as, like, these people are controlling people. Also, if we're able to identify why that Scientology is controlling people as far back as the 60s. Why have we not talked about it more before now? Why have we allowed it to continue to exist? Anyway. Well, the problem is that, no, I can't. There, I can't there's a lot of problems here. with Scientology. No, I was just going to say that, like, Freedom of religion is a very touchy subject yeah. because there are other religions that are, I mean, there's levels of indoctrination within any denomination, religion and stuff. There are some people that will, I mean, give up their whole lives to follow it. And that's normal in some religions and others. It doesn't call for that. Um, so it's, yeah. it's, it, it is almost like, what does your religion call for? Some people, it calls you yeah. to devote your life. Some people, it calls you to take a vow of celibacy and move into uh-huh. a, a, you know, a, a church or... And I think that's what Scientology realized, and that's how they've gotten themselves where they are. Mm. Because on the surface, it's just, oh, we're just like any other religion. But when you start to, like, dig deeper, it's really manipulative and problematic and definitely not what... I think I, I think I need to do more reading. I don't know as much about Scientology. I, mean, I, I got know, like the basics, but I feel like I need yeah, to know no, more you before should. I... Um, me and my family got really into the Leah Remini show, Scientology in the Aftermath, which is actually oh, really yeah. good. Um, I remember that coming out. Yeah, no, it's really good. I think it's on Netflix now. So if you want to watch Ooh, that, I it's will. it's good to have on in the background, and it's very interesting. And I know it's like a reality TV show and, and like oh sensationalized, but there's enough other Scientology documentaries that have that same information. I might look for the more like documentary type ones first and then Yeah, and then go to the Leah Remini show. But there's one really good one that I've heard of. It'll probably come up if you look it up. But um yeah, so Scientology is like problematic, if you didn't know. (laughs) I knew it it was problematic. I just didn't know. For like a lot of reasons. Um they're very controlling of their members to a point where it's like literally their whole life. I was about to say, it's very financially controlling. Financially well, controlling, right? which is a strategy that Manson does employ later in his life. I um, think that's very common. Yeah, I, very common because I, it's a, you see it in abusive relationships. It, it's forced dependency. Yeah, exactly. Um, that's like number one way to make people dependent on you is take their money away. Yeah. Yep. They literally can't leave you if they literally have no exactly. means to leave you. Exactly. So he's studying Scientology and he's, you know, he's in prison just really focusing on how, um, how to become 
a cult leader, essentially, which like, it's astonishing to me because I feel like in cult leaders, you kind of see that they just kind of, it's like instinctual. It's instinctual. Maybe they'll study it a little bit, but like never is like, yeah, it kind of just happens. They get put in a leadership role. And then all of a sudden, you know, they're like, I have all this power. He's the academic of, <laughs> of cult leaders. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah. Um, for me, it was really interesting to see how rehearsed this was. And maybe it's just because he was in jail for so long that he was like, you know what? I'm going to use this time to develop my skills as a cult leader, which like, okay, not what I would do in jail. Yeah. I was going to say there's a lot um, better things to do in yeah, jail. Yeah. Maybe like that. read a little bit, work out. Get like <laughs> Get your GED. Learn learn a language, (laughs) but definitely not how to become a cult leader. Uh, But yeah, so this is what he's spending this time doing. And again, he's in this kind of in between period for almost a whole decade, and so he had a lot of time to kind of fine tune these skills. Most of the sixties is what he spent. This is how he spent most of his most of the sixties. Yeah, I think of Charles Manson as this big huge like entity yeah that just like plowed through and grabbed everyone along the way and everything but i mean mm-hmm. if he a decade's a long time to kind of be yeah. figuring it out and sentient and not recruiting or anything mm-hmm. so um and we see him employ those skills that he had been working on for the entirety of the 60s specifically mm-hmm. when he moves to san francisco in 67 And this is when he's able to kind of take advantage of everything that the 60s was. Um, He is able to fully embrace not only the skills that he has learned uh, taking advantage of people, but also just the kind of like naive trust that a lot of people in the 60s had. Yeah. Um, Because again, like America was society wise was a very trusting place in the 50s and the 60s. Yeah, exactly. You would never like even think of that i remember the first time i saw hairspray the movie oh, yeah. <laughs> and i was like when they're like talking about how you can just like leave the door open i yeah. was like what <laughs> like, okay. just leave your doors unlocked and my parents were like yeah you just used to be able to do that and i was like that's not real <laughs> I know. um well, then there's parts of the country where it's you still can like communities yeah. that genuinely look out for each other so tightly that like you can let your children run amok yeah um so he's you know and I'll talk about this later, but Manson and people like Manson are the reason why. Not like, oh, in theory. Like, literally, they're the reason why we don't have that trust anymore. Yeah. Manson had a huge hand of that. Um, so he's in San Francisco, the peak of this, like, free love, drugs, commune-style living. Um, and he's able to take advantage of it. So he's in San Francisco. And he realizes, and I again, I kind of touched on this last episode, but he realizes he has an opportunity here. He's like, all these people are hopped up on drugs. They all already want to live in a commune. There you go. And they all already want to have sex all the time. So he's like, I'm going to take advantage of that. And so he markets himself as a self-help guru and kind of plants himself in um, the Hayton Ashburn district of san francisco and as i talked about before his first what we consider a family member was a librarian who worked for uc berkeley Mm -hmm. and she became kind of key in recruiting future um, people to the manson family um Mm -hmm. as you kind of seen a lot with like that first female member of the group especially because 
you know, men realize that women are more trusting of other women usually. And so yeah. they use other women to yep. Make yep, you manipulate. Yep. Um, however, I do think that that librarian was not involved for long, especially because she is not part of the key group that carries out literal murders no, we, <laughs> a few years later. Not so good for her. Um, so during his time in San Francisco, he is recruiting more and more to his family and he kind of develops this, um, way of manipulation and kind of honestly mind control of these people. So using a combination of sex and drugs as a means to control his followers, he manipulates them into trusting him a hundred percent and convinces them that he is the Messiah. Um, because of course, um, it's scary as we've seen that lately. Yeah. He would often have uh, members of this Manson family take LSD, again, using the drug that was popular of the day. Um, well, so they would, he would have them all take LSD, and then he would sit there and rant uh, these huge religious things about how he was the Messiah and like convince them and basically indoctrinate them while they were drugged, which is like. That's so literally like mind MK control. Ultra shit right yeah, there. that's yeah. like like mind control. <laughs> like when you're on LSD and someone's just telling you things, they're gonna probably believe it. Yeah. He also uh he uses the message of free love to his advantage, as we've as I talked about before, like mm-hmm. controlling these women enough to where he would literally sell out their bodies to gain favor for his group. How much of the teachings is really about free love? Because, like, in Jonestown, they talk about how communal everything is, but I don't, like, I figured it's different between each cult, the emphasis I think, put on physical yeah. connection. As far as, like, as I was trying really hard to find sources on, like, what he was actually teaching, mm-hmm. most sources just talked about how he would talk about how he was the Messiah. Okay. So I think it was just it worked in tandem with the free love because he was okay. preying on that specific group of people who already bought into the free love. Okay. You know what I mean? Yeah. So he didn't have to do much teaching on that okay. because it was already there. It's, at least is what I would say was happening. Because okay. I, I had that struggle when I was researching Jonestown because I was like, it talked yeah. about how they weren't encouraged to be in physical relationships but that, mm-hmm. like, it was a very communal thing and they yeah. were, like, sharing children and that whole... Yeah. Well, I think as a whole, this Manson family and everyone who, like, lived with Manson at these various locations um, kind of subscribed to whatever goes. I do think that Manson was ultimately the one that they all deferred to sexually, which again, that comes with cult leaders. Yeah. Um, Doesn't make sense as in that should happen. Makes sense as in, I understand that from a cult leader's perspective, why he would do that. It makes sense in context. Um, So I think also too, there was a real appeal to the, on some level, there was security offered by being involved in this Manson family. Because again, people were like homeless in San Francisco. These majority of the people who were coming to San Francisco were living on the streets. And so, yeah, yeah, exactly. And so for this guy to be offering them a place to stay, even if it was some librarian's apartment, that was a big, a big appeal. And even though he was super manipulative and it was not a safe environment at all in that way, there was a level of security just by purely being not on the street, yeah. you know? And so it had that appeal and food, you know? Um, So there was that appeal too. And so he used all of these things to kind of recruit people. Um, At its peak, the Manson family included over a hundred people with 30 people considered to be in the inner circle of um, like the people who were closest to Manson. Okay. 
okay, that's bigger than I thought. Yeah, I me knew too. It wasn't as big as Jonestown, but I knew no. I didn't realize it wasn't like. Yeah, no, it was it was a considerable amount of people, um, and this might be a little graphic. So I I did think it was an interesting story and worthy of including. But if you have long, young children listening, maybe skip forward thirty seconds. So um, as I talked about last episode and a little bit earlier, he did use women's bodies as way as bargaining tools basically um and we already know how this is kind of how he controlled um wilson of the beach boys that i talked about his relationship with last episode but there was a story about him um again using the women in the family um as bartering tools and (laughs) then doubling down by telling this man that he was like getting favors from that the only reason why those women were sticking like in the family, staying with Manson was because of this guy and how big his penis was. And so that was the only reason why. So not only is he manipulating them sexually, he's isolating their yeah. um, insecurities and saying, and preying on them mm-hmm. and manipulating them in that way too. So he is just like, he knows what he's doing. He went ham. Yeah. It's just a really interesting little like tidbit about just the type of manipulation that Manson was doing. As I said earlier, he also controlled the members of his family financially, not having allowing them any of them to have money of their own. Um, that's a big, and especially when you have this kind of like family narrative, which I don't think family it earned the name family until later, mm-hmm. post the killings. But that would make sense. Yeah, but um, still, it was a very communal way mm-hmm. of living. Um, and so you get that kind of like, and it's a reason. Oh, what do you mean? Like, it's our money. It's not your money. Mm-hmm. And then, oh, well, that makes sense. And then all of a sudden you're financially dependent on this random dude, you know? Right. Part of his teachings, again, because he insisted on the fact that he was the Messiah, was that um, he and only he could lead the world through the upcoming race war. He and his followers were the chosen people to reclaim the planet after this race war that he was convinced was happening. Um, And he thought it was going to happen sooner rather than later. Yeah, we don't love that. So if you're confused, um, basically Manson thought that specifically black people, and this goes in hand in hand with the rise of uh, black, the black Panther movement um, and kind of more militaristic, stances on civil rights which again we were talking about (laughs) with cat stuff and there's a conversation to be held there but he perceived that the rising militarism of the black rights movement um would end in a race war uh, during which black people would like take over the planet and then subjugate all the white people and he thought that in that new world, he and his followers would rise up for something he called the pit, which I'll, which is like, I, I don't even know. Like, I don't even know what that is. Um, hold on. Let me have a little paragraph here. So as his warped vision went while the race war was raging, and this is um, a quote from the Vox article, which again, sometimes articles just explain things better than I could. And uh, this is definitely one of those cases because it's literally batshit insane. So, quote from the Vox article um, about the Manson uh, family murders, which is a great article, really goes into details on like all elements of this, but it says, as his warped vision went, while the race war was 
race war was raging, Manson would lead his followers into an, a vast underground city, which he called the Pit, where his followers would be able to morph into winged elves and other fantastic creatures if they wished. When the war was done, he would then emerge from the underground to take over the world from the black people because he believed they would be unfit to rule themselves. So. So white superiority complex also being scared of so he, color. Yes. He believed that black people were going to take over the world. During this time, his him and his followers were going to go down to this like underground city that- Hide. Where did he think this was? Like, did he, I don't know, um, hide and then come and reclaim the world from them because they would not be able to actually run it because he's a racist, stupid, shitbag, white supremacist. Um, and this is the teaching he's like spewing to his followers during like LSD sessions when they're all high as hell, tripping balls. And <laughs> these people believed it because again- the hippies, you know, the hippies, y'all, they were racist. They were racist. <laughs> the yeah. 60s get, oh, it was like free and accepting. No, like majority of the- Free and accepting for white people. For white people and for like free love and everything. But like the hippies, there's a reason why every former hippie you know now is like kind of a bad person. Um, <laughs> I, I can't speak to that because I don't know any hippies. I do. Um, <laughs> and- I, I, I'm not saying all hippies are like this. Absolutely not. But you kind of expect, oh, you were a hippie. You should be free and accepting now. But no, they're just boomers. Oh. You know? Yeah. <laughs> um, and so he's, and he's only talking to middle class white people. These middle class white people who have determined that for some reason their life is so bad that they're going to go be a hippie. And so they're, they're racist. They were raised to believe in racist things. They were raised in the fifties, you know, mm-hmm. like he's, and people were just like, yeah, okay, yeah. Products of their time and mm-hmm. their own racism, yeah. Products of their time, their own racism, and literally LSD-induced, indu- like, <laughs> mind control and manipulation. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, like, that's that's why these people believed in this crap, you know? Um, also, I think it's really interesting, the kind of science, science fiction element of his theory behind the race war, because that, to me, is very Scientology, because mm-hmm. L. Ron Hubbard, if you didn't know, the founder of Scientology, wrote science fiction books before. I didn't know that. Yeah, before. And so I'm like, there's another connection there that I think is really interesting, too. Um, and this is kind of where, in November of 1969, uh, Manson hears the White Album from the Beatles for yeah. the first time. And this part I've heard so much about. Yes. And this part is literally insane. There is a really... If it was an acid trip in real life, this would be it. Yeah. Um, there's a really great article on um, the Rolling Stone. It's called Charles Manson, How Cult Leaders Twisted Beetle Obsession Inspired Family Murders. Um, they go into a deep dive on um, how the Beatles themselves felt about it, their kind of responses to it, and the exact reasoning behind Manson's... Um, perception that the white album is what it was and Beatlemania was strong enough strong enough in and of itself oh it absolutely was but for some reason Manson decided that um he would put his own spin on it oh no that it was like meant for him Mm. um so this article has a lot of details I pulled again I pulled some quotes from it because it just does a better job explaining than I could and there's also a lot of quotes from Manson himself that I didn't want to like paraphrase 
So I pulled some quotes from the article just to read off um, just because of how weird this is and (laughs) how much I want to do it justice. So Manson essentially believed that the Beatles had a secret message for him that they have included in their White Album. Do we know if he ever met the Beatles, by the way? Or if he just, like, knew the Beatles no, and thought no. he was, like, I'm on par with the Beatles now. No, he never met the Beatles. I know one of the Beatles knew Sharon Tate and Rowan Polanski. Okay. But, um, I forget which one. But they talked about it, how, like, when the murders happened, they were like, I knew Sharon. And okay. it was rough. Um, but that information is also in the Rolling Stone article. Okay. Um, so... Like I said, this album was released in November of 1968. However, Manson didn't hear about and hear it until December, whatever, next month. Just a little detail. But um, Manson listened to this and decided that this whole album was meant for him. And that it uh, went right along with his teachings on this future race war. And the Beatles were trying to, through their music, tell everyone, but especially him, that this was coming. Yes. <laughs> and okay. so it's 1968. And if you remember from last episode, this is right when he's kind of realizing that his own music career is not going to work out. Um, and <laughs> so he's kind of scrambling. He's like, oh, my God. And then he's also waiting for this race war. And you get later into the 60s and all of a sudden we have legislation passing that actually offers civil rights to black people. And so he's like. A revolutionary idea. Uh-huh. Yeah. But he's like, oh no, like this race war, is, is it going to happen? Um, and so he's kind of like caught between these two things. Um, and ultimately the white album was a big reason why he decided that he would have to be the one to, to start the race it. war. Yeah. yeah. Um, so quote from the Rolling Stones article. So it said the white album was soon resonating throughout the Man- Manson family. Manson had renamed Susan Adkins, one of his most loyal followers. Um, he had renamed her as he did with several of the other members. He would renamed Susan to Sadie Mae Glutz prior to the album's relief release. But the Beatles inclusion of the cheeky song, quote, sexy Sadie made it seem like he had defined it. So this is, I think the real reason why he was like, this is a message for me Okay. because he had renamed one of his most loyal followers, Sadie. And then the Beatles released a song called Sexy Sadie. Hmm. And so he was like, meant to be meant to be. Um, and again, this Rolling Stone article goes into like specific details about, um, lyrics he heard, um, and how he interpreted them to be his own messages. For example, um, the songs on the white album meant more to what meant more and more to Manson. Uh, there was an, uh, an interview that the Rolling Stones did with, uh, Manson in the seventies by a man named Bugliosi. He was the journalist at the time. And he wrote in that article that the song Rocky Raccoon, um, which, which, uh, if you're hearing this, my mom and my brother, I did include this information for you, (laughs) which was a goofy melodramatic number that began in India with McCartney, Lennon, and Donovan making up a cowboy named Rocky Sassoon was to Manson, a veiled story of an African-American uprising. The slur, the second half of raccoon, which I'm not going to say, uh, struck Manson Rocky's revival. Uh, it means it's coming back to life. 
Manson told Rolling Stone in 1970, the black man is going to come back into power again. And to Manson, uh, the song Happiness is a Warm Gun, um, perhaps Lennon's most double entendre filled song meant that the Beatles were telling Blackie to get guns and fight Whitey. That was a quote from Manson. Manson really is a racist piece of shit. Oh, he absolutely was. The songs, all the songs on the album were influential to her, to her, to him. Um, but the most, the songs he liked the most were Blackbird, Piggies, Revolution One, Helter Skelter, and Revolution Nine. He specifically liked Revolution One and Revolution Nine because he believed they were a reference to um, Revelations. Is that the book in the Bible? Yeah. Um, reference to Revelations, which, if you know anything about the Bible, that is the Apocalypse book. The, the End Times. Yeah. The, the End Times. Yes. <laughs> so he liked those. Um, piggies, because... Did your pastor never terrify you and try to... Cat, you know how it was with... I know, I was yeah. kidding. Yeah. <laughs> I did hear about Revelations way too young and... Yeah. Like, bodies lying in the streets. Yeah, that's not a great thing to tell no, children. No, it's not. So, the song Blackbird, Maybe which... that's why I have a terrible fear of dying. I think there's a lot of reasons why, Cat. That's true. <laughs> so, Blackbird, if you've heard Blackbird by the Beatles before, it's like an acoustic song. It really is. And like, it's about... It's like a lullaby. Yeah. And it was written by McCartney to be about a black woman during the civil rights movement in the U.S. Um, however, in Manson's mind, this um, specifically addressed African Americans fi- viciously fighting the establishment. Okay, honey. Um... So the man who interviewed Manson, Bugliosi, figured that the Beatles were programming, said that Manson figured the Beatles were programming the black people to get it up, get on, get it on and start doing it with lyrics like Blackbird singing in the dead of night, take these broken wings and learn to fly. You were only waiting for this moment to arise. And if you remember, um, including it being literally written on the walls of the um, La Bianca family's house in blood rise was a big word to Manson. Um, yes. Um, so that's, uh, so we have several songs here that were influential to Manson. Um, and then there's of course, Helter Skelter, the infamous Helter Skelter. And Manson related to this song so heavily believed so thoroughly that this was a message for him that he then named the entire movement of trying to get the race war started helter skelter and also wrote that in blood on the la La bianca's walls um so a quote from manson saying um helter skelter means confusion literally it means it doesn't mean any war with anyone it doesn't mean that some people are going to kill other people helter skelter is confusion confusion is coming down around you fast it is, con- it is a conspiracy that the music is telling the youth to rise up against the establishment because the establishment is rapping, rapidly destroying things. Oh, is it a, c- a conspiracy that the music is telling the youth to rise up against the establishment because the establishment is rapidly destroying things? He continued, the music speaks to you every day, but you were deaf. You are too deaf, dumb, and blind to even listen to the music. It is not my conspiracy. It is not my music. I hear what it relates. It says rise. It says kill. Why blame it on me? I didn't write the music. And that was a quote from him in court when he was being tried. So also an idiot. So he's like literally trying to blame his belief in the race war on the Beatles. 
<laughs> he skipped a couple steps there for me. I'm not quite following his reasoning, but like, okay. Yeah. So that, that is, um, and again, if you want, you know, specific things, the article is a really great resource from the Rolling Stones. They really go into it and it was really interesting read. Um, but I'm not going to read for you the whole article, but I did want to pull what? his quotes, um, because they are crazy. Um, yeah. So all of this culminated in his belief that it was his and his followers duty to start the race war. And, um, so on the night of August 9th and August 10th, they went out and tried to start the race war and they specifically used black Panther, um, iconography to try to blame it on the black Panther party. And their hope was that if people saw what they believed to be the Black Panthers starting a supposed race war, that other black people would join in and then we would just be take over and become a whole thing, which of course did not happen. Um, instead it took about four months, but instead, um, the Manson family would be arrested. Four Is months it or four two? months? I think it was at least a few months. Oh my gosh. Um, I, th- I know for sure the trial took four months. Um, uh, and what's even more infuriating is following the murders of the Tate, of Sharon Tate and her friends and the LaBianca family, the Manson, several, like 20 members of the Manson family, including Manson himself, would be arrested twice before they actually arrest them for what the hell? The murders. Um, twice it was charges relating to, uh, around stealing cars. One of the arrests and raids on one of the farms they were living on at whatever point, um, they arrested 22 members of the family. Both times they just let them go because <laughs> I guess they okay. didn't have sufficient evidence. They also had nothing connecting them with the murders at this point. It actually took um, the arrest of Susan Atkins, who I mentioned before, Sadie, yeah. apparently. So, um, one of the arrests did end up with her being in jail more permanently. Um, and while she was in jail, she bragged to one of her cellmates that, um, she had committed the Tate murders along with her family. Well, that's the stupidest thing Yeah, ever. that in combination with another mention, a uh, member of the Manson family who during one of the raids was like, hey... I've been trying to get out of here. Can you help me out to the cops? Um, So they took her in and then she testified about the murder of um, the one uh, Goldman who they had killed before the family murders. Yes. Um, And how her boyfriend, who was that guy, Soleil, um, Beau Soleil, uh, he had how exactly he had done it. So all of a sudden they now have a connection here. Um, Girl and so, yeah, yeah. So they were able, police, uh, were able to arrest the Mansons and then that led to one of the most famous trials of all time. It was to, to that, up to that point, it was the longest trial in California history. It was also the most expensive trial costing taxpayers over a million dollars, um, in 1969. Yeah. So that's 69. That's a lot of money. It's a lot of money. Um, Crazy expensive, crazy long, super televised. Everyone had their opinions on everything. So eventually, all of those who were involved, all the people who were involved directly with the murder, including Manson himself, even though he never actually killed anyone, um, as far as we know, uh, were charged and sentenced to um, the death penalty. However, in 1972, California voted to overturn the death 
penalty and in a ruling that it was unconstitutional. So all of their sentences were changed to life in prison. Manson would die on November 19th, 2017. And I remember being in class when it happened, when I got like the news alert. Do you remember? I don't remember that at all. Yeah. Actually. I remember being like, oh, oh, I, <laughs> he was still alive. Know. I know. That's <laughs> yeah. what I thought. It was like, wow, he lived a long, lot longer than I expected. Yeah. Um, so uh, one interesting fact about his time in jail, though, is that he never lost, fo- like he always has had like a following, um, which is true with most cult leaders and unfortunately most white supremacists. Um, in mm. fact, he uh, did get married again before um, he died Ew. to a 26 year old nope. who had been obsessed with him since he was a teenager. She started by writing him letters and then eventually transitioned to visiting him every week and then eventually married him. I believe, I believe in 2014, I couldn't find an exact date. I was like, where, why can't I find this date? Um, but I believe it was definitely within the 2010s. So he was old. He was, he was like 83 when he died. So he was old and he married this 26 year old. She was so devoted to him. She started that, when she was a teenager. Yeah. That's grooming. Yeah. That's straight up. She, so devoted to him that his, the iconic cross in the middle of the forehead that the Manson family, specifically the most devoted followers had, um, she, um, gave it to herself Oh my god! Uh, to show her devotion. Um, several of the other f- people who were involved in the murder, uh, have, um, there's a few that have been up for par- parole, but as far as I know, none of them have been granted. And I know at least a few of them to have died in prison over the years. Um, so Manson was not the only one to die in prison and yeah, um, that's really the rest of that story. And I, I wanted to take the time to kind of go through the, I'm glad you did. Yeah. Um, because if not, that would have been like eight pages of notes for the last episode and that would have been, that, a would, little, have been that, that would have been a little, a lot. Um, so the aftermath of this, and I didn't see this until I was doing my notes for this episode. But, and I think this is a very good point. This was the event that ended the sixties. And I saw that in several different sources. This ended the optimism. This ended the trustworthiness. This ended the kind of glittering and drug crazy and like it ended what the 60s was when you think of 60s you think of summer of love you think of summer 69 you think of woodstock yeah this ended it it was the event because it was a man who took advantage of all of those things Mm -hmm. and used them for bad it also is the thing that made communal living have such a bad name yeah because he took advantage of it um and we still haven't fully recovered from any of these things, you know? Well, and it's interesting to me that after something like this, Jonestown can still happen. Uh-huh. Oh, absolutely. And I think if anything, it's set up other things like that. I think it's set up for the world in America and how it was in the 70s. Because as we talked about last time, there's so many serial killers. And like the world is considerably a worse place in the 70s, at least America is than it was, it seemed to be in the 60s. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and I think that's a really good and astute observation that it, it was it was the event that ended the 60s. The murders of Sharon Tate and the La Bianca family and everyone else and the Manson family existing was the thing that kind of took us out of that cultural moment. Yeah. 
No, I would, I would agree with mm-hmm. that. And I feel and, like Jonestown happening right at the end of the decade, too, did it for the 70s. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and uh, I talked about this a little bit, but it also is kind of the one event that a lot of historians point towards as the start of the Satanic Panic, um, something that I will definitely be doing an episode on um, in the future. So stay tuned for that. But this is um, this has significant historical impact for a lot of different reasons. Um, but yeah, that is my end of my two part series on Charles Manson. Woo-hoo. So I hope this one was a little bit more cohesive than the last one. I don't think the but, last one was uncohesive at all. Okay, good. I felt like it was kind of all over the place, but that could just be me in my head. <laughs> I think, I, I mean, I've convinced myself before that some of my episodes are like literally unlistenable. Yeah. <laughs> well, yours was good today. Oh, so, um, yeah, but that's, that's that on that. Yeah. Hopefully I explained things properly. I think great. You okay. did a fantastic job. I learned, yeah. I learned and I... I also thought in all of the things that need to be done. Yeah. It also was for me because I didn't know too much about all of this either um, before I started doing notes for yeah last episode and this episode. So Well, and if you're like us and you don't know something about a topic and you want us to research it for you, we will. Just let us know at our oh, Twitter first, I guess. At, yeah. <laughs> our Twitter is at T-I-N-A-H-L podcast if it'll fit in however 240 characters. 280. 280 characters. Yep. And if it's more than 280... Uh, hit us up on email. This is not a history lecture at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. Ideas, thoughts. My cohort gave me some really cool topics the other day, so I'm excited to bring some of those your way. But if there's something you're missing in history class or your history lecture, turn to us because this is definitely not a history lecture. Oh, wait. Wait. Apple uh, reviews. <laughs> yeah. Remember to please leave us a review wherever you can, specifically Apple reviews. It really helps us out, guys. Please, 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 please. Also, um, I feel bad. That was a really cohesive ending, and that was, like, really smooth, and I felt good about that, and then we forgot our reviews. Well, you so know, every it review, is what it is. Every review you leave is is one more drop of rain we might actually get in our stupid town. Okay, please, please leave us a review. I would kill for some rain right now. I know. It's disgusting. It was like 105 <sighs> degrees today. I and mean. it will be literally for the next 10 days on the forecast. And it makes me want to bang my head against the wall. So save us. Leave save a review. Save us, please. And in the meantime... Save us and the grass. Yes. <laughs> in yeah. the meantime, uh, hope you have a great week. Yeah. Hope you come back and listen to us again next Tuesday. We will talk to you then. Bye. Bye.